Food labeling is not a dry science. It is a dynamic, political, as well as scientific strategy simultaneously to help us know what we are eating and to hide it from us. Lauren Swan is an expert and we pick her brain. It's on Tip of the Tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Lauren Swan. She is a dietitian and food labeling expert who is also a strategist and a specialist in cultural foodways. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, Lauren. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I really want to ask you all kinds of questions about the FDA and rules and all that sort of thing. But before I do that, tell me how you became interested in food labeling. I became interested in food labeling when I was a dietitian in college, well, studying to be a dietitian in college. And I remember during a class one time, the teacher pointed out how a can of pork and beans actually has more beans than pork in it. <laughs> and that, that kind of intrigued me. My mother actually said I was the child that enjoyed going shopping with her, grocery shopping. And I paid very close attention to the brands and the sizes that she purchased. So maybe it even goes back before then. And I also remember a classroom assignment as a dietetic student in college where we had to look at product labels. And I was very sensitive to the fact, for example, that a package of what appear to be cheese slices might be pasteurized processed cheese or might be pasteurized processed cheese food or that a can of fruit might be packed in light syrup, heavy syrup, water, or fruit juice. And that really interested me, those distinctions, not just, well, back then, when I was in college, nutrition labeling wasn't required. It was only on the product if the product made a claim. But just the, looking at the ingredient list, we had another assignment where we had to take a package of anything, potato chips, cookies, you know, a roll, whatever, and look at the ingredient list and divide that up into food groups. And I remember my professor said, Lauren was the only one who recognized that a lot of these ingredients aren't in a food group. <laughs> it was additive. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, so yeah, it was just something that interested me um, when I moved on into nutrition communications, which was really more marketing communications and public relations work. I always saw the label as this incredibly vital piece of messaging for the product and it stays on the product, it's on the product on the shelf, and then it stays on the product and follows you into your home. There was a whole era where people ate breakfast, they ate cereals, and they would sit and read the back of the cereal box. And as a result, 
that became an area to really write about the product. I know a dietitian who had a job. She had contract work repeatedly over time writing copy for cereal boxes. And it wasn't, I do labeling compliance work so that the information on the label is compliant with government regulations. I've also done some creative, fanciful copy writing work for labels too. But this was what she did exclusively, was write the different messaging on the back of the labels. So pretty fascinating. That is really fascinating. I remember sitting at the breakfast table, reading the back of the cereal box all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. I used to like the ones that had puzzles. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a, the surface area of a cereal package enables more copy, what we might call cell space, promotional space, yeah. um, than say a can of soup. <laughs> right. you know? And once you pour the can of soup into a bowl to put it in the microwave or to heat it on the stove, you're probably going to put the can, you're going to throw the can away or recycle it where the cereal box is going to sit on the table with you right? You know, while right. you're eating cereal. So yeah, uh, that's a, that's really fascinating. Okay. So we, we're going to talk about the draft FDA guidelines for plant-based milk substitutes, which sounds really really boring, but I don't think it is at all. I think, first of all, we're really looking at other uh, things than just animal products right now. Everybody's talking about being vegetable forward in our foods and all of that. Um, one of the things, before we actually literally talk about the guidelines, one of the things that worries me about doing that is that what you wind up with are plant-based products that are as highly processed as animal products often are. And that if part of what you're trying to do is eat fewer processed foods or highly processed foods, you're really not necessarily getting to that if you're drinking almond milk or you're drinking oat milk or something like like that in that vein. Do you have a thought about that as a dietitian or as a person who cares about labeling? Yeah, well, processed foods are big right now, especially ultra processed foods. And it is an interesting sort of challenge in the plant-based sector that processed foods are not necessarily good for our gut microbiome. We're learning more about that. Mm -hmm. But one thing to keep in mind about processed foods, most foods that we purchase have gone through some sort of process. If a carrot's pulled out from under the ground, it, it's gone through a process. Right. So mm -hmm. most foods have gone through some kind of a process and it's the degree of processing. And even for ultra processed or highly processed foods, there are portions of our population who need foods like that to survive. So for example, one of the obvious examples is a product like Ensure. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a nutrient supplement. Maybe there's an individual who can't chew 
or um, maybe they have digestive issues and they need some of these, you know, so there is a segment of the population. Now, when we're talking about the healthy population at large, we are definitely learning that whole minimally processed foods are probably best for us. Mm -hmm. And I learned that as a dietetic student 40 years ago, that the closer we eat foods to the way we find them in nature, the better off we usually are. And mm -hmm. we've learned those lessons over again too. Um, I know something else for the plant-based market at the roots of veganism, the way I understand it is the desire to stop humans from holding or killing animals for food. So that's not quite the same as promoting a plant-based diet for health or sustainability. And I think there is sensitivity sometimes around plant-based products because of that, because there are ethical considerations often driving many people who choose a plant-based diet. But there are many people who go plant-based for health, the health of themselves, the health of the planet. They minimize animal products in their diet. They might have vegan meals or days throughout the week routinely. And that's why we're seeing a lot more plant-based products available on the market. There's, mm -hmm. there's definitely a demand and plant-based milks or beverages have really carved out their own space in the marketplace and it is growing and thriving. I personally know people who are omnivores. They eat meat and cheese and yogurt, but they prefer plant-based milks over dairy milks for various reasons. Mm -hmm. So that that's out there too. So I try to limit my consumption of animal products, not because I have an ethical consideration, but I just think it's healthier to eat more vegetables and other plants. But I can't give up milk in my coffee. I think that oat milk and almond milk are just, they just don't do what cow milk does in my coffee. So that's one of those places where I haven't been able to let go. So tell us a little bit about what the FDA is proposing, if you don't mind. Yeah, what the FDA has proposed is a guidance. It's not a regulation, mm -hmm. but they are requesting comments and feedback on it. And a guidance reflects the way they interpret labeling that is truthful and non-misleading and the regulations on the books. And the current regulations do have a standard of identity for milk, and it's the lacteal secretion from a cow. So that's that was established a long time ago. And internationally, there are other countries like in Europe that have already said, uh, if it doesn't come from a cow, you can't call it milk. Mm -hmm. And some of these concerns have been going on for a while. There have been some lawsuits from years ago about plant-based beverages using the word milk. Not all of them do. Some use the word beverage or drink. Um, Not all of them use the word milk. So this is the first time FDA has kind of stepped up and said, this is the way we see it. This is our perspective. And it is important, I think, for companies to follow FDA guidance because I have seen it used, not necessarily in FDA uh, issues like warning letters, but I've seen it used in lawsuits and other ways. So um, anyway, what this guidance says is if 
a plant-based milk and they're often nut-based, but like you said, they can be oat-based or even rice-based. Uses the word milk on the package. FDA advises that they also disclose the nutrient differences from cow's milk. Oh, okay. So they might be lower in some nutrients like calcium or protein, depending on whether or not the milk is fortified, which is an option for plant-based manufacturers. If they want to fortify the milk for nutritional equivalents to milk, the the plant-based drink, they have the option to do that. Nothing is stopping them from doing that. Right now, you know, without looking at a bunch of different market leaders in this space, I wouldn't know for sure. But when I have checked it, some nutrients, they often come up the same or even higher and then some they're lower. And the most important thing for nutritionists and dietitians, especially those who work in public health and clinical healthcare counseling, is to think about the nutrients that we have come to routinely expect from milk. That's what, if someone switches to a plant-based milk, they might not realize they're missing. And I can honestly say this is not an attack on plant-based milks. I first learned about this concept of nutritional equivalency, again, when I was a college student back 40 years ago, and it was because we were learning about counseling pregnant women who were lactose intolerant. Oh, okay. And we were told that if we recommended soy-based beverages, which were just coming, they were nowhere near as prevalent as they are today. They were just sort of coming in to commercial use to make sure we checked the equivalency because we'd also learned that for a pregnant woman, woman adding two cups of milk a day to her diet can give her all the additional nutrients that she needs to uh, for the pregnancy. Uh-huh. So as we know, in westernized cultures, we have come to sort of depend on dairy-based foods for certain nutrients like protein and calcium and with milk when it's fortified, the vitamin D. Uh-huh. And it's not a judgment call that that's necessarily good or bad, but that is a reality. And that is something that we have to take into consideration as we move forward. So I'm of Sicilian heritage and my grandmother came over from Sicily and she used to make her own almond milk. And so it was something that was just considered a drink that you would make. And she would soak her almonds and then grind them up and basically screen out the almonds and let the water that had all of the Uh, milky stuff in it come out and then we would drink it and it was never to be a substitute for cow's milk it was simply its own drink and it was called milk because it was white Um, and it looked like milk but nobody pretended it was actually milk now you got a little glass because it took a lot of almonds to make it so you weren't going to get a big glass and um Also, she was known to pour a little marsala in there (laughs) to make it have it, you know, a special flavor or whatever. And it would be like a treat in the middle of the afternoon. And so I'm really um, familiar with 
what I would just call a homemade almond milk, not something that's been made by a manufacturer, but just made at home. And it was never thought to be used in place of milk. It was its own treat. So I think it's very interesting that in this modern time, we are looking at so many substitutes or alternatives to um, cow's milk to be used in place of cow's milk. So it's not just its own thing, but it's it's actually taking the place of cow's milk. And I think that's true in a lot of cases with plant-based meats and um, things that are just kind of what I call fake, fake meat or fake cheese or whatever, as opposed to um, just saying, let's eat this plant-based food in the way that's best presents the qualities of plant-based food instead of trying to make it like something that it isn't. Do you have any thoughts about that? First of all, I love your recollection about almond milk because as you as you announced in the beginning one of my specialties is cultural food ways and this is the value and significance of all of us honoring our heritage and our memories because that's a very different perspective like what you described a carton of milk sitting on a shelf that you purchase and pour over cereal or give you know to a child with a whole glass and some cookies that wasn't the way you were enjoying what you recall almond milk growing up and right. that's a that's a really good perspective to have to see that contrast so i think those kinds of things are very valuable and i know what the foods we have now did evolve from the way people found to prepare them a long time ago. So for someone to come to the conclusion that nuts can be used to make a milk-like substance is not a stretch. No. And, and like you said, the difference is, are we going to now try to swap that out for cow's milk that was performing a different nutritional and even from the example you used, a different culinary mm -hmm. um, you know, place in, in the diet. So that is really fascinating. Another milk that's been with us a long time that we think of as milk is coconut milk. Right. You know, and, right. And if you are from the Caribbean or travel to the Caribbean, you know that that is very much a part of their heritage and their tradition. And Codex, which is um, I, under uh, FAO, this is these are universal international bodies that look at governing food from an international perspective, you know, for harmony in international trade and things right. of that nature. Right. They have a standard for coconut milk. And it does distinguish coconut milk from coconut juice or water. Mm -hmm. And it has to do with the solids of the coconut and how it's mixed together and becomes a liquid. So we do have some precedent for looking to plant-based foods for milk that have been with us for a very long time. And we do, we just need to be cognizant about um, the nutritional differences. Right, right. And, Mm -hmm. I think, too, like the other part of your question with plant-based foods, I think we all are becoming more conscious and aware of the importance of plant-based foods, number one, because westernized diets tend to be too heavy in animal-based foods, number two, because it's better for the environment. Mm -hmm. um, so we are looking at exploring all these different options, and we are seeing more options on the market. But, for example, with two of the leading plant-based burgers 
that appear to be intended to replace or be almost exactly the same as a burger that comes from cow meat. Um, both of their founders founded those companies because they want to stop the slaughter of animals for human food. That's why they founded those companies. That's in their mission statement. Now they do recognize, and you know, they've been around for a couple of years now, they've gone back and tried to work harder at making these things nutritionally equivalent to burgers. And they would like to tempt animal burger eaters away from it and use this instead. Um, that actually does not appear to be what's happening. There are more flexitarians than individuals becoming vegan or vegetarian. So they're still eating some meat, but they're also eating some of the burgers. The alternatives, not. yeah. Yeah. And there is the question of nutritional equivalency and ultra-processed foods. Yes, that, yeah. that is still an, a burning issue. Well, I think... You know, people have argued to me that it is a way to coax people to try something that is plant-based because it's not so different to them. But on my end, I think that there are so many wonderful ways that people have produced food around the world, all over the planet, with great spices and other kinds of leeks that maybe aren't American are as familiar in the American diet. And those things taste wonderful. And they are made to be the way they are. They're not to be substituted for something else. You know, it's not a lentil burger. It's just lentils. And you just cook it the way you do with spices or whatever. And, and so why do you have to have a burger? <laughs> but that's me. And I understand that it probably makes a whole lot of sense to a lot of people to try it's kind of like bacos. You know, bacos are really old. They've been around for a long time. And so if you don't eat pork or you can't eat bacon for one reason or another because you have heart problems or whatever, bacos are great. So it's not for me to make those decisions. I'm just telling you what I think. <laughs> Well, that's Bacos is an interesting example. Um, in food labeling, I've also been responsible for kosher certifications, and that was in the trade press once that Bacos are kosher. They were certified kosher. Well, they didn't have any pork ingredients in them, mm -hmm. but it's still a little bit odd. It, it, it's intended to be an imitation bacon. And not only that, um, before I saw that flare up in the news many years ago, I think that same company came out with a bacon bit that actually was bacon because initially there were complaints about bacon bits weren't really bacon. So, Hello. you know, the, the reactions, <laughs> the way these things can kind of move on are, are really interesting. Something else I wonder about somebody my age who has lived through a lot of decades of different emphasis on food and how to improve the food supply and how to get people to eat more healthfully, to reduce our risk of chronic diseases. Um, I lived through the fat substitute era of the 1980s, and we had ingredients like Simplex and Caprinin and Olestra Olean and, you know, a, a bunch of different um, salad trim 
you know, different fat substitutes, and none of them exist today. If mm -hmm. if they do not in consumer applications and certainly not in the U.S. market. And there was a lot of investment around these fat substitutes, and there was a lot of marketing and promotion and news, including news controversy, which can actually drive sales because right. people get attention from it but they're all gone and i think the thing we might have learned from that era is our bodies don't like fake our bodies like the real thing they don't like fake i don't know what that is and if that's just me you know my little professional opinion that's not based on any marketing research but that's just an anecdotal observation perhaps something in the brain is telling us you know, you expect the real thing and then your gut gets something different. I know that's one of the theories about sugar alternative sweeteners that, uh -huh. that they tend not to work out well in the body. And we're even discovering that some of the ones that can be considered natural, they're derived from natural substances, also might not be working out that well long-term. If we attempt to use them in volumes... <laughs> that made us have to cut out the real sugar to begin with. That's what I think the issue is. I think it's, we don't control the amounts. A little known fact I remember learning again in college a long time ago, that individuals who have diabetes, and as we know, have to be very cautious about the simple carbohydrates that they ingest after a meal, probably would do okay if they had a cup of coffee with one teaspoon of regular sugar in it. But because it's very difficult for people to grasp that distinction, they might walk away with the takeaway of, oh, the dietitian said sugar's okay, you know, and not think about it within the context of one teaspoon in a cup of coffee right after a meal while you're taking your insulin and following all the other right, you know, requirements of the meals and snacks and everything probably will not be that disruptive. Again, that would be individual between the person who has diabetes and their dietitian counselor or doctor or whatever. But the point is, we humans don't do things like that. <laughs> if you were willing to eat serve, just one serving of chips and not the whole bag, you wouldn't be seeking a product like Olestra or Olene chips. Right, right. <laughs> so right. so I wonder if you know we'll 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 find out with with, with the plant-based substitutes we will find out over time how well the products do and what they are doing for health so right i i so agree with you i do think that um and talking about health i do think even letting people decide that once a week or every lunch or whatever it is they decide to pick as their way of doing something plant-based instead of animal-based. If everybody did it, it would make a big dent. But mm -hmm. I think that the group of people who are doing it is pretty small. And so I guess we have to keep talking about it just so that people, more people will become interested in doing it. Yeah, you know, one of the things I've seen 
uh, recently. This goes a couple years before the pandemic because plant-based movement's been growing momentum for a while. I'm seeing more options on me menus all over the place. And you know, we Americans love to either eat out or grab things out. But even in convenience places and quick places, I'm seeing more 100% plant-based options, not vegetarian, but vegan, as in no cheese, nothing. And it, it's refreshing. And I think the consciousness has been raised. Uh -huh. And I think that's important. I've done a lot more experimenting with plant-based soups and stews and, and different, you know, recipes that I used to use meat. And I've enjoyed it. And, and I've enjoyed, you know, the different spices and combinations that really bring the flavors out. Mm -hmm. So I hope everyone is, I hope it's inspiring everyone to eat more plant-based foods and you know, minimize your, your animal foods. You might not need as much as you've been currently including, and you might discover that the plant-based foods are really tasty and enjoyable too. Exactly. So, yes. Yeah. Well, so if somebody is interested in looking at the FDA website and wants to make comments based on the way they react to what's there about plant-based milk products, do you think that those things are really considered and taken into consideration by the FDA? Yes, I do. They're required by law to, they have to read all comments. I don't, the consider part, I guess that's, you know, what exactly is considered. But I do know this, having lived through the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act of 1990, because I worked in food labeling before that, and this was long before all the online convenience of the cyber world as we know it today. I used to do reporting, Stringer Field reporting for a publication called Food Chemical News that did an offshoot food labeling news because stuff was so hot. And in that publication, they said that the FDA had to hire a contract agency to open all of the mail. They got 10,000 pieces of mail. This is postal mail. Wow. That they, and they had to open and look at every piece. So yes, I do believe that they do. Now today, it's a whole lot easier. You click on a link, you go to a website, you can even submit your comment anonymously. You can find the federal notice, federal register notices and proposals that have already passed into regulation or are currently up for more comment. You can look at all the comments that have come in and in the ones that have moved through to final regulation, when it publishes in the federal register, there's a huge preamble introduction portion and you will see them talk about the specific comments in there. I have pulled them up for discussions on, on LinkedIn and other social media forums to get into discussions about labeling issues with lawyers and food scientists and other peers in the food business. And I pointed that out. Did you know that FDA took that into consideration? Here's a comment that they considered and it will have their response to it. FDA agrees or FDA disagrees and here's why. So yes, it is important. It is a voice that we have. One thing I don't like it with social media are all the complaints and criticism about FDA and industry. And then, well, what are you doing about it? 
How many right. people who complain, do you go to the sites? Do you comment? Do you, do you let your voice be heard before the regulation finalizes? Or do you just complain afterward that industry is, is bullying FDA with their, with their money? You know what industry does? They write comments. They write comments on time. Right, right. Yes, they yeah. do. That's what industry does. So if you want to get in the game, write comments, encourage people who agree with you to write comments, support advocacy groups who represent what you believe is the best thing to do. We now have mandatory GMO labeling. We didn't always have that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was the companies pushing for it. So how did that happen? I remember when it, it took several years. We didn't always have allergen labeling. We didn't always have menu calorie labeling. I saw those things become proposed legislation and get shot down, and people did not give up. They kept pushing for what they wanted. So I, I do not believe that the population at large is a helpless victim to industry and government, you know, duking it out over who has control. I don't believe that at all. Well, Let's just recommend that everyone go to the site, to the FDA site, so that they can make their own decisions and make their own comments, because why not? They're all entitled to do that. So, Lauren, I want to thank you so much for being with us. This was really a fascinating conversation, and I know there will be many, many more things that come up for the FDA um, to take some action about. So I may be calling you again so we could talk about that. Yeah, that's fine. I post things in my food labeling group on LinkedIn. And I also have a TikTok going where I've been making little announcements about some of the labeling. So. And, and what are you on TikTok? How can people find you? Lauren Swan 17. And that's Swan with two N's. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.